Hello, and welcome to the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Moodencat, this week is your old pal, Ocho. Hello. How are you doing? I'm melting. It's a tad warm there, I understand. Um, 101 degrees Fahrenheit. It's moderate here in central Scotland, I would say. It is not quite ice cream weather, but it's all right. I don't need to have my cardigan on. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's fine there because you've got, like, the ice boxes that come... Every day, like, they run up the stairs and deliver the, the big ice cubes and what have you. <laughs> I only travelled in distance. I didn't travel in time. I didn't move <laughs> to the 1930s to live with Laurel and Hardy and Jimmy Finlayson's <laughs> on the other side of the block. <laughs> but you know what we do to keep cold and cool and temperate over here in the US of States? We go to the cinema because it has air conditioning. And I think that's a very good idea. Let's you and I go down to the Gormont for our four penneth of dark. Are we not in danger of mixing metaphors here? Because we've moved from air-conditioned cinemas in the United States to suddenly asking for four penneth worth. If I go to your local cinema in Anaheim and I ask for thruppence... Yeah, but if you go to a local cinema in Anaheim cinema and say, movies. are you showing Bless This House, the movie... <laughs> I was trying to transition from 21st century America to 1970s Britain. I ad- admit that the Gaumont is probably not a very 70s thing. Well, I've got to admit that I am not really what you'd call a movie buff. And yet I know a lot of people who are movie buffs. And they are as into films and the whole art of film in general as we are about television. And sometimes I sort of think, oh, it'd be lovely to belong to that club and what have you, and to know all these directors' names. Well, actually, I think you, you know a bit more about film than I do. But I know slightly, yeah, but I, mean, I know just enough to confuse myself. Well, I think that it does tend to get like a slightly higher billing as far as like the arts world is concerned. I think that film is considered the, the higher medium and television is sort of the... Uh, well, this is why television you know, has now become baby cinema, and the idea of television as a thing in itself they're now just long form films really and yet in the movies the hobbit 48 frames per second trying to make itself look like a london weekend sitcom left track was a bit of a mistake but it was nice (laughs) sitting down in the local amc cinema with your bucket of popcorn and felix boness comes out (laughs) cracks a few gags to get you in the mood for some talking adventure we've gone into whimsy we should be disciplined <laughs> you may have noticed dear listeners that we do have a tendency to slightly veer off course every now and then but this week we are going to stay firmly on track we are going to the movies and we are looking at sitcom spin-offs on the big screen now a few weeks ago Boggins Jovi and I discussed all those you know those films that they made in the 1970s with Robin Asquith and so on that had all the sitcom stars in them. And along with those, it was sitcom spin-offs that sort of thrived in the 1970s whilst the British cinema industry was, generally speaking, at a bit of a low point. I think the arguable decline of the British film industry, I don't think it's necessarily as much of a case that horror and exploitation and sitcoms were dominant because of any great increase in their production. might have been a small increase in their production. I think everything else just went away. We stopped making things like This Sporting Life or, God help us, The Charge of the Light Brigade. <laughs> I think other genres in British cinema, because the money wasn't there, receded, and what was left was the stuff that had always been there. We just not necessarily noticed it. 
I mean, George Harrison Mark started in the 50s, but sorry, I shouldn't mention that name give you flashbacks. <laughs> it doesn't take much. I mean, I was reading the cast list for Bless This House earlier on, spotted Tommy Godfrey's name. I was there. One move. Straight away. There you go. I was just looking at the IMDb entry of a film from 1954, Life with the Lions, a radio sitcom. It hadn't moved to television. I think it moved to television in 1955. So... Radio had been moving to cinema occasionally. There is, and shamefully I cannot remember the name of it, there was a panel show that had a film made in the 40s. I want to say, does the team think, but there's a little voice in the back of my head saying that that's completely the wrong title. The Navy Lark had a film made as well. But from television transfers, I know like 1960, Wacko had a film made called Bottoms Up, which is available on DVD. The Larkins, which is not a television sitcom you ever hear people talking about. Something we will correct in the coming year. At a film made called In For Trouble, which I've seen. It's amusing enough. And I suppose if you didn't know about the televisual origins, they'd probably just set aside a lot of post-Ealing type stuff. Just that good-natured British screen comedy you got in the 50s and 60s. Like the early carry-ons when they were not quite so prurient. I'm noticing also with the last couple of titles that you mentioned, they are retitling them for the cinema. Which seems yes. an odd sort of move, because you'd think that they'd want to carry over the audience from the television or the radio, and then giving it a different title is going to sort of throw some people off the scent, so to speak. Well, that's something I better make a note of and research. Yes, why would you do that? I can understand for the export market, but then again, things get retitled for the export market. Life with the Lions became family affair in the US. We're not looking at the history today. We're looking at the things people think of when they think of the golden age, question mark? of sitcom movies. We have viewed three titles for this show today, but we're going to be talking about the genre overall, and we're going to be discussing various titles from principally the 1970s. The first one that we watched was an interesting little sort of hybrid because it was taking something from TV, but it was also using cinematic influences, and that was Bless This House which began on Thames TV in 1971, Sid James, Dana Coupland, and then within two years it had its big screen version, capitalising on the star and his carry-on past. The producer was Peter Rogers and director was Gerald Thomas, as with the carry-on films. The writer of the film was Dave Freeman, who went on to write Carry On Behind a couple of years later. I very much enjoyed this. It's an interesting little twist that it has Robin Asquith instead of Robin Stewart in the role of Mike. Robin Asquith actually went for the role of Mike in the TV series but lost out to Robin Stewart. Now as far as the film itself is concerned again you've got some interesting little elements in there because you have the next door neighbours Terry and June before they were Terry and June on television. This is the thing about when you adapt a running thing, not necessarily a long running thing when you adapt it for the big screen, what do you do to it? You can't just necessarily have a 90-minute episode. You have to do something to disrupt your format. Now, you said you were doing some research because initially you'd thought, oh, yes, everybody goes on holiday was the standard. But then you looked at it, and that's not quite... That's right. Whenever you see a newspaper cutting and it talks about big screen adaptations and so on, it's one of the first things you always hear people say, oh they take them and put them somewhere else, fish out of water they send them on holiday abroad, whatever it is and it loses its charm and then in the process of looking at bits and pieces 
I sort of realised that that's actually in the minority of the films that we're looking at. I mean, Bless His House, as you say, you've got some new characters coming in, but it's all domestic. They don't take the abbots out of their normal home life. Things, for example, such as On the Buses, the first two On the Buses films are entirely based in the bus depot. Only the last one, Holiday on the Buses, takes them out of that. And even then, it's just to Pristatin, it's not abroad. When people speak about this phenomenon, they're usually referring to something like, are you being served? And even then, the first half an hour or so of that film is entirely set within Grace Brothers. It's only the last hour where they go off to the Costa Plonka. You know what? I don't think I've ever seen that. You're not missing too much. Okay. They're like the lads. It's actually a continuation of the TV series. That's the interesting thing about Like Lads. Well, the Likely Lads works as a last episode because there is something in the ending that echoes a previous show. But it's interesting that it doesn't go down... I think it's fair to say that this is a more common trait than the fish-out-of-water idea. With the films, you do tend to get a lot of back to square one. Not necessarily a complete reset and then telling the whole story again. You do get that sometimes. But quite often, you do sort of waste a lot of time in the film having to explain who characters are for people who haven't seen the TV show that went before it. Whereas The Likely Lads, it just follows from the end of whatever happened to The Likely Lads. Here they are. This is what they're doing now. Yeah, as you say, if you watch The Likely Lads, then whatever happened to then the film, it's all continuous and you don't have to have any sort of reminders as to who people are you don't see any particular situations played out again again that is another trait of the sitcom films is it may be a particular scene or it could be an entire storyline where that is then played out again in the cinema so for example mutiny on the buses you've got a bit of business with blakey installing remote control and being able to get through to the buses via radio that was based on a plot that had been used in one of the TV episodes previously. In something like Rising Damp, that's actually the majority of the film, is playing out sequences that you've already seen before. Sometimes with different people and roles, but you've still got what would have been, say, the second half of a particular episode, like, for example, when Rigsby and Philip have the boxing match, that plays out in the film pretty much exactly as it plays out on the television. Well, let's go to Bless This House, because, of course, Bless This House is one that ends in such a way that when you go back to the TV version, it just has to be, yeah, the movie didn't happen. Or if we want to play the game of continuity, the movie is the last episode of Bless This House. It's just that we then have to go back to all the events before I confused myself. After map of the sitcom universe, I shouldn't start playing these games. <laughs> and, of course, we are inviting submissions for Map of the Universe 2, which will be coming in a few months' time. So if you do, no! have, if you do have any other ideas as to how that filthy philanderer Gary Spado impacts the outcome of the universe, both now and in the past and in the future, then drop us a line at the sitcom club on Twitter. Anyway, so Bless This House, yeah, I think that it's got a lovely, as you'd expect, with the personnel involved, it's got a nice sort of carry-on feel to it, and you've got lots of recognisable people in it. You've got people like Bill Maynard and Cal Hawkins from Placer. You've got Wendy Richard in there, George A. Cooper. And, of course, like I say, two years before, they were Teddy and June, because two years before Happy Ever After. And Teddy is a lot more pompous in this than... He is in Happy Ever After, which is more pompous than he is in Teddy and June. And June Whitfield is, I suppose she's a little bit more sort of posh, but otherwise largely the same as she was in those shows. Okay, well, 
dancing around the fact that there's now going to be a massive fight. I didn't think much to this. <gasps> it was okay, but it wasn't really anything more than okay. If I want to watch a good Bless This House story, I'm better off going to the TV version. This just seemed a bit off-kilter. A lot of stuff depending on people being jerks to each other. It's okay, we've got Terry Scott playing the nasty neighbour, and he is beautifully set up when it's finally time to pay for the house he's bought. Does he quibble over £50? He does, yes, because there's a cigarette brought on the carpet. Uh, yeah, just th- that's great because it immediately <laughs> lets you know what kind of person this is. Yeah. He even bends down, I believe, and points to the cigarette burn. That's a nice bit of work, but then there's the stuff around the antique stall that Diana Couplin's character's opening, and all this business around a chamber pot. It just it felt a bit children's film foundation in places. Well, there's nothing wrong Which with that. Which is fine. That, that, sorry, that sounds like I'm saying children's <laughs> film foundation. Yuck. The Children's Film Foundation had its place, and there's a reason I think they're a little bit more cut to the chase, cardboard cutout with their characters. I'm not saying a word against Egghead's robot. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way right now. But this, these are established characters. This is an established, horrible word, franchise. We should have a little bit more to play with. I was more interested in Mike's story. I'm going to go crazy now. Okay, it is a problem that modern... Everything, television and cinema and comics and gum wrappers, is obsessed with the relationships between fathers and sons. But I would have liked to have seen this be the story of Sid and Mike. Now, okay, hang on a second. Could you elaborate on this? When you say that everything these days is obsessed with the relationship between father and son, is it? Because I haven't really picked up on this. Oh, it's that Joseph Campbell stuff that people have been huffing for the last 30 years. Okay, now could you just cover your ears for a moment, Ocho? Right, let me know when they're covered. Oh, of course, they couldn't hear that because he's got his ear covered. Right, okay, um, listeners, I don't know who Joseph Campbell is, but I'm going to pretend that I do so that I don't offend Ocho, okay? Okay, you can come back now. My ears are still covered. No, no, no you can come back now. I'm uncovering them now. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, so you didn't hear that, that's good. So, yes, I see what you mean now, it all makes sense. Actually, I suppose that tendency's broken up a little bit over the last few years if people have got tired of it. But just Google it. Fathers, sons, modern movies. I would have preferred it if it had been a reference to Gavin Campbell. What, hunting down the pornocrats? <laughs> I just sent... Dave the Barman. I have just sent someone a DVD of the Playbirds. By request. <laughs> I, I don't mean I don't mean I've just shoved it through someone's letterbox unsolicited. I mean they actually asked me to. So It's not yeah. it's not me, is it? Because no, I don't not, think that no. will get through customs. No, no, it's not. And I didn't know this until the other day. Boggins Trophy told me this. Gavin Campbell in the on the buses film, apparently he's been dubbed to make him oh. sound more butch. I didn't know that. Well that's a fun fact. Anyway, okay, so you're not a huge fan of Bless His House. Um It's okay. It's shocked it's not, and appalled, but this is the standard thing about a lot of these films is they're sort of good enough. They're good enough versions of things that have been done really well. Often the highest praise is people say, well, Porridge isn't too bad. But nobody sort of says Porridge is as good a film as it is a television series. They're sort of ho-hum. Let's talk about Porridge for a moment, because I really like Porridge, the film, and I'm still waiting for a lovely 69 HD print of it to come out one day if such a thing exists because it's always that same for free slightly discolored version that you get on the TV and it does play quite a bit on Channel 4 and Film 4 but I do remember Sam Kelly saying in Comedy Connections about 
one of the problems with the film was that the first half an hour or so was taken up with, as we talked about, reintroducing all of the characters because they were trying to tap into America as well. And for the benefit of people in America who hadn't seen Porridge, of course, that's explain who Fletcher was and so on. I mean, one of the nice things about it is that they don't just restage all the earlier episodes. They don't have it begin with they Fletcher They find a nice balance of a plot that not necessarily couldn't have been on the, done on TV, but would have taken a lot of resources. It requires more locations, more characters than you'd get in a typical episode. So it justifies its length and its breadth. Sitcom movies are generally seen as second best, aren't they? Are you going to argue that they're not? No, I wouldn't go that far. I think even the most effective is probably being Dad's Army. Well, the thing is that purely from the point of view that the televisual medium is their main game, the show was developed for the television. And regardless of how successful any film spin-off is, then... It's principally for the small screen, and that's how the lines have been devised. They've been devised usually with the intention of having an audience react to them and so on. And we're going to talk in a little while about the differences between film and television and how our second choice of movie actually sort of combines those two. But you know, people are shouting at their MP3 players right now, which is situations like Billy Liar. Oh, you mean going the other way? Yes. Ah, well, yes. I'm not sure the gulf is that big or that uncrossable. I'm sure if we got down some of the classics of British humorous cinema, I could imagine this having been a sitcom or becoming a sitcom. Maybe there's a certain... The fact that somebody's adapting a well-known title for the cinema indicates a certain lack of care. I can just budge it out and it'll be a hit. Well, yeah, you can argue that... I mean, I like these adaptations we're talking about. I like them all. I mean, unless so. how Sid James is a little bit up at times. And Sid James is a very experienced film actor. But there's one where he practically jumps out of the screen with his cackle. Now, actually, is that the bit where Peter Butterworth's fallen into the cement? No, it's the bit about something comparing a chamber pot to a safety pin or a drawing pin. Ah, yes, yes. He does the full Norman fell. <laughs> <laughs> right in your face. with. <laughs> well... I suppose the only criticism that you could really level against these films, and it's not one that I would level against them because I like all these films, and like I said before... I'm not saying they're not, not likeable. I'm, no, no, I'm no. just trying to argue them into second best. One argument that you could put forward that I wouldn't because I'm not a movie buff, but if somebody's a movie buff I can understand that they would, is that this could be seen as a lazy idea for a film in the same way as nowadays you're getting films from 20 years previously being remade. I mean, we've got Godzilla again just now. We've just had King Kong a few years ago, which had already been remade in the 70s. And yeah, you're getting that sort of retreading. Hey, we haven't mentioned that Dad's Army news, have we, on the podcast so far? Dad's Army news? The talk that there's going to be a Dad's Army film with Toby Jones and Bill Nye and everybody going, oh, Russell Brand, he'd be perfect for Walker. God. People who are not familiar with Russell Brand or Private Walker there. <laughs> Bringing this back to Bless This House. One of my in-laws was just passing as I was watching Bless This House. Heard the sound from my TV and came in and said, Oh, are you watching Looney Tunes? Or the music? <laughs> what I believe is known in the trade as Mickey Mousing. <laughs> every note follows every on-screen action. That's one of the problems with this, because this is something you're used to seeing where there is no incidental music. 
let the actors and the script take the strain. You don't need... Well, I suppose maybe it's compensating for the lack of laugh track. It is quite... Now you say that, Bless This House on the television is quite a sober, I suppose you could say, show. I mean, it's got scene, fade, fade up, scene. You haven't got any incidental music. I can't remember ever seeing any film. It's all studio-based, isn't it? I need to see more to give an authoritative answer to that question. It does raise a thing, because at one point I was going to talk about... Ah, well, film acting, it's a bit different. Maybe these people, some of these people are feeling a little out of their depth. Well, for a start, as I mentioned on Mailbag, you've got a slightly smaller talent pool in the UK because of a smaller population. So you do get things like television actors, but generally everybody's done everything to a greater extent. It's not, I'm saying that there are actors that you would find in America who've only ever done television, but I think there's a lot more legit and film and television cropping up a lot more throughout somebody's career and everybody's done a bit of an apprenticeship and of course on a lot of shows there will be single camera bits there will be film sequences they're going to be done on a much smaller budget and a much more shoot and get away style this is part of my clever finessing into the topic of father dear father which is not shot like a normal film it is an interesting oddity in this regard isn't it it does claim to have been shot in a system called Multivista, and I'm not entirely sure what that means. Did they just mean that they had two or three 35mm cameras running at once, which was used in the US. I Love Lucy and You Bet Your Life, I believe, was shot that way. There were systems where it was done through electronic cameras. There is a concert film from the 60s, the TAMI show, or TAMI show, which was done where there were electronic cameras. It was a high-definition television screen, something like 2,000 lines. So the film in the end is it's like a 35mm tele-recording of a high-definition screen. There's a film from the 70s with Red Fox called Norman Is That You, which is shot in a similar system but really genuinely does look like a tele-recording. It's quite blurry and fuzzy. Unfortunately, I was watching an off-air of Father Dear Father. So if I was watching a nice crisp 35mm print on a DVD, I might have been able to tell whether this was completely sourced through film or whether it had gone through an electronic process. But it results in this weird situation that you do have nice long takes and actors are able to deliver their lines in a way that they know the reaction is going to be immediate and they can play off each other. But it's a bit like that thing I mentioned about occasionally BBC Two would show an Adams family that hadn't had its laugh track added. <laughs> and John Astin would deliver a punchline and then just kind of have a fixed grin while he waited for the laugh to be dubbed in. And there was a bit of that here. The actors were bouncing off each other's performances, but they seemed to be waiting for a, an audience to bounce off of as well. Okay, you enjoyed Bless This House more than I did. What about Father, Dear Father? Ah, uh, I found this a little bit sort of long-winded in parts because the basic setup is that Patrick Cargill thinks that he should remarry for the sake of his daughters and you've also got some other subplots going what on. What basic idea? This, this plot has been shattered and scattered around the film. This should work. This should have really, really worked because... Patrick Cargill is great at farce. I've not never seen any television episodes of Father, Dear Father. And I deliberately avoided watching any because I knew we were going to do this. I wanted to come to this one completely fresh. But I have watched The Many Wives of Patrick. So that's Patrick Cargill doing farce. Farce is a little bit breathless done in a half-hour sitcom. But hey, so great. We've got a 90-minute movie with a great farce actor. We can have the situation escalate beautifully over 90 minutes, it will be like going to the theatre. It doesn't work out that way. 
ideas flare up and then flare off again. Patrick thinks that he should get married again, but he's proposed to the wrong woman. Well, this is just going to grow and grow and twist and twist. And he's going to get, oh, no, okay. He's found out and he sort of said, no, I don't want to marry you. And she's got angry and she's gone. And Patrick's daughter's moved out and Patrick's other daughter wants to get married. But they just kind of bumble along. There's no point at which everybody starts running in and out of doors trying to avoid each other and any kind of misunderstanding. One of the daughters is going to get married. And Patrick wants to get married. Can we somehow have a miscommunication there and two weddings being held Uh under two different sets of circumstances? No, I'm not not suggesting (laughs) Patrick marries his daughter. I'm just (laughs) suggesting the wrong flowers and the wrong cakes and things like that. I wanted the movie to end with absolutely everybody surrounding Patrick and going, what's going on? And then going, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for everything. Freeze frame. No, okay. Now I like that ending, but I'm going to suggest that as a ticket holder, I've got my ticket stub in my hand. I've paid to go and see this, rather than it simply arriving in my home via the ITV One button. So, do you not think that I'm entitled as a paying cinema goer to a proper conclusion to this story? No, you're entitled to a punchline. You don't necessarily have to have a resolution. Resolution like that could be very disappointing where Patrick just goes, yes, well, I booked the flowers, but Nanny booked the cake. And what happened is my ex-wife mistakenly thought that my new fiancé was actually engaged to my daughter's fiancé. And that's the situation. Everyone goes, oh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I can see how that would uh, happen. Well, okay, (laughs) whereas... We just end at that moment of maximum panic. It's it's a bang crash ending. You don't actually have to see the sword drop. You just have to see the shadow of the sword cast. Well, at least figuratively it. over Patrick's face. At least include just, it. As there's a, a perfectly good explanation. Beat, isn't there? At least include it as a DVD extra. What happened afterwards? Yeah, but you've seen the situation develop. You have more knowledge than any of the other characters, so you know what's going on. It's just the thing of watching Patrick stuttering and spluttering. <laughs> oh, so you, you're saying that the, the Italian job, that's a bad ending. Thelma and Louise, that's a bad ending, is no, it? Actually, a? No, actually, a? no, I've got to say, no, Thelma and Louise is a good ending because you're left us to no doubt as how it's ended. The Italian job, actually, I do find that a little bit unsatisfying, that ending. So well, I we've dropped you... enough spoilers, but I will tell you later about how, how they get out of the bus. No, we're not having people running away from the podcast for another minute. Let's get back to Father, Dear Father. <laughs> so that is my principal problem. It's just lots of little plots bubble up and then bubble off. I think you're right when you say that it's patchy, and there's a similar situation going on with this as you have in Rising Damp, where you have basically a sequence of little stories playing out. And the one advantage that Father, Dear Father has is that at least it does have a story arc throughout, whereas Rising Dam doesn't really get its story underway until maybe the last 25 minutes or so. But it does feel sort of patchy and it feels... Father Dear actually, the film would be perfect for something like ITV3 because it's almost like it's got ready-made commercial breaks. Yes! But it doesn't even feel like three episodes, it feels like six. Again, it's a similar situation with Rising Dam. You have sometimes situations which would have played out over one episode and the first half of the episode would have been the setup and here the setup is just going at like fast forward speed 
so you can then get to the payoff and then you know the entire thing is then truncated to about sort of 12 minutes or so I think it's up and down because of that and the, like the scenes in the vicarage they were a little bit sort of slow is it me or does the is he a vicar or a priest it's hard to tell his accent changes I'm pretty sure he was Italian oh no he said no he says no he says he's a father that's right because Patrick Cargo doesn't know how to refer to him and he says I'm a father and he says ah so am I he was Italian, wasn't he, when he was outside? Well, yeah, but <laughs> that, that was... He's a bit when he gets back indoors. <laughs> That's on film. And VT, and he's got an English accent. <laughs> okay, there's something we're avoiding here, because we don't like controversy. We do? You might. I personally am a great big chicken and quite happy, sitting around going, bark, 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 and avoiding confrontation. Uh, people talk about 70s comedy and race, and the peddling of racial stereotypes in father dear father they try and confront racial stereotypes head on and i think they make a bit of a mess of it really because they try and get this idea of how black people talk to other black people no i don't think in general any black person would say to another black person get back to your wood pile and it's like yeah they're not trading on stereotypes but i mean later on when you actually get the big what a truly racist show that some columnist would rage about would do, would have the main comic idea be, ah, Patrick thinks that his daughter is dating a black man. They don't really do that here. The big scene is rather that the black character, Larry, and his girlfriend, who's played by Elizabeth Adair, Patrick accidentally tells Larry that you're sleeping with my daughter. So Larry thinks that Patrick is his wife's father but he's white and his wife's black so it's an inversion of the expectations it doesn't really go anywhere like like so many ideas in this has this been shown on tv recently and if so i'd like to know how much of it got to where i know that it got an airing on bbc2 last summer and unfortunately father father is one of these films that not only have i had the misfortune to miss every time it's been on but i've also just found out immediately afterwards so for years, I've just kept on missing it and then spotted it in the listings afterwards. But no, I'm going to keep an eye out for it because I am interested to see how it's broadcast next time. It's going to be a difficult scene to edit because, as you were saying earlier on about the multi-vista setup, it means that you then have lots of long, continuous shots, making it then much more difficult to cut out individual lines whereas in most films it's a lot easier to do that because you're just cutting from scene to scene to scene dialogue reaction and so on so i'll be interested to see how that plays out in the future next time it gets nearing now you saw this film before i did and you mentioned to me about this particular scene without giving me any specifics and so what i was expecting was patrick cargill say as dan Aykroyd in trading places when he's playing the Rastafarian. That's what I was expecting to happen. Thankfully, it didn't. I like that goodies episode one. Oh, yes. Nice soundtrack. That was a real smooth transition, wasn't it, there? Now, this is what puzzles me. I really like the opening theme. It's always fun when you see a teenager's party in a sitcom because they're never listening to anything that's recognisable. It's always something like Keith Mansfield or whatever. It's never the Stones or, or the Beatles or anything like that. Nothing that involves if like, you're really licensing lucky, costs. It might be The Cool. The what? Which was The Cool. What is this? I can't remember which label it was. Was it DeWolf? 
certain library disc by a non-existent band called The Cool. But they do sound like 60s pop records. They're done on a bit of a budget. I think there's one in a, another Richard O'Sullivan film, but it's not a comedy, called uh, Horror of Haunted House. And they're having a teenager party and they're actually dancing to records with singing that sound like they're played by a pop group and it's DeWolf Library music. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you got that kind of thing happen, things like Neighbours and Home and Away as well. I'm sure that somebody once wrote to Points of View and said, why are they always playing the same piece of music in the cafe in Neighbours? Is that the only bloody record that they own or something like that? And I guess the answer was yes. I mean, if that's what was supplied by Mushroom Records, then that's what they played. Now, an oddity here. This is, again, a recurring theme. This does not use the Fowler, Dear Fowler theme tune, as heard in the TV show. It does, however, include the theme music from For the Love of Ada. (laughs) And yet the film version of For the Love of Ada doesn't. It has this ghastly... I don't know how to describe it. It's just this awful, maudlin piece of rubbish by Gilbert O'Sullivan. It's something like, Mom is at the kitchen. Dad is in the pub. Sister's putting on her makeup. And I'm sitting here pissing about. It's, like, it's, something, it's, something, it's something like that. It's, re- it's really awful. I mean, you're talking about like nails down a blackboard. That's what it sounds like. One film that has got a soundtrack, and this is not, I'm getting slightly off topic here, okay, but this is not a sitcom adaptation, but film with an out-of-place soundtrack, I'm Alright Jack. Can you remember the theme to I'm Alright Jack? If you can't, Yeah, it was some sort of winning. late 50s, early 60s British rock and roll. Exactly, exactly, that's what I'm saying. It's like, let's say, for example, if they make the, the, the modern version of Dad's Army, and they get Mick Busted to do the soundtrack for it. <laughs> That's what it's like, and it's like you're just you're expecting some lovely little title music and the kind of thing that you would have had in something like Passport to Pimlico. Yeah, but at least it's set in 1960. Oh, oh but it's still always awful. It's a bloody racket, and, and honestly, any time that comes on the TV, the mute button has been pressed by myself. Well, I'm sure that the Dad's Army movie will have a Northern Soul theme tune. <laughs> I wouldn't even like to guess who the producer of that track may be. Right now, I can only think of one movie where the film theme tune was the same as the TV theme tune, and it was even the same recording, and that's Dad's Army. You said that Bless This House was actually an adaptation of the TV theme, but it's a very loose adaptation. Oh, yes, it is loose, but it is. Listen carefully, it is. Bloody brilliant it is, too. It's a cracking theme, Bless This House. Can we think of any other sitcom films where they've ported over the TV theme? Steps on Sun. It's in... New rendition of it, but it is the original theme. Oh, it's a grim life on the bus. Each <laughs> night I cry myself to sleep. <laughs> if, actually, if you analyse the lyrics to the film version of On the Buses, the theme music is actually really filthy. It really is. In terms of innuendo, it goes way off the chart. If you actually to make a literal translation of that. They wouldn't be able to put out an ITV feature in the day, that's for sure. I'll have to move on to television next. But Please Saw the Film has its own theme and yet has a little piece of the distinctive Please Saw theme that everybody knows. And of course Rising Damp is the best piece of disco <gasps> ever. Oh, and what people don't necessarily oh, realise... Oh, sorry, second best piece of disco ever after the gaffer. Hmm. <laughs> no, what people don't necessarily realise about Rising Damp, the film... I mean, everybody's heard, rising, dump, dump, it's coming up the wall. Everybody's heard that 
theme song. But what people don't know about it is that there was actually a seven-inch release that's got extra dialogue from Rigsby on it. And strangely enough, he's conversing with Miss Jones, even though Francis Delatour is not on the record. <laughs> it is quite strange. But yeah, I recommend seeking that out if you can. Um, I'm be- looking at a list I found of adaptations of British sitcoms to film and yeah, Stepson's Son and Dad's Army and a, a little bit of police beyond that. Are you being served? I thought that was a slightly similar piece of music that was different enough so that it could be copyrighted by somebody else. No, 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 it is the proper oh, theme. Oh, it is? It is yep. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a cover version of it, but it is the proper theme. Porridge, that's got the... Doesn't I have don't the mind the cover version. I mean, that's, that, that should be one of the appeals of going to see a movie. Is Oh, man, I'm going to hear a 50-piece orchestra version of the TV theme. Fantastic. And you, you end up with, well, well, let's move on to it. Man About the House. Okay, let me get my main criticism of Man About the House the movie out of the way. Doesn't the flat look grim on film? Now, we need to address this issue because that is an issue that does crop up time and again. I think that the example of it doing the most damage in terms of the overall look of a film is Rising Damp because the sets... That wasn't grim enough. No, the sets in Rising Damp, the TV series, are beautiful. They're, they're, they're so nicely made and they just get they capture the capture, the essence of the rundown location perfectly. Here, it's just a rather dull property. And yeah, you can see bits and pieces where the wallpaper might be peeling a little bit, so on, but there's nothing really wrong with it. And yeah, it loses so much because of that. Again, Man About the House, it's an oddity because you've got that lovely living room location in the TV series itself. And in certain sitcoms, they recreate the living room well. In this one, I don't know, it's a little bit off. And of course, the version that you were seeing, because we alluded to this right at the beginning of the show, the version that you saw of this was the the full-on, for-free version, where you're actually getting to see like bits of the ceiling that people in the cinema wouldn't have seen. Whereas there was a lovely HD oh, So print. We, we're finally going into a aspect ratio well, the, controversy. There was a lovely HD print that goes out in ITV3 of Man About the House, the film. And it is basically the 4 free print that you saw then framed for 69. But it really does look, it looks lovely. Well, British films tended to frame for 1.75 to 1. And widescreen TV is 1.77 to 1, I think. It would look fine. That's my main criticism, though. Just looks a little bit drabber than that lovely overlit television version. Beyond that, this worked for me. Paula Wilcox is the only one of the main cast I can not remember. Oh, and Brian Murphy have not seen in films. But as I'm going through a lot of British films at the moment, I don't doubt that will crop up. Richard O'Sullivan, of course, was a child actor. It's great to be young. Is that the 50s film he's in? Oh, I'm not sure. I know he was in Carry On Teacher, which was Mm. 60. Sally Thompson, of course, was in The Railway Children. Actually, Paula Wilcox was in a sitcom spin-off before this. She was in The Lovers. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'll say it again about The Railway Children. What a lot of people miss about that is the fact that the father is guilty. Because if he wasn't guilty, he wouldn't be being played by Ian Cuthbertson. (laughs) But it has been a long time since I saw The Railway Children. He doesn't actually play as Charles Endell Squire, does he? He does in the version in my head. A beautiful moment at the end. When he steps out of the fog and goes, I'm back, definitely. 
<laughs> and then he starts doing all that scat singing. <laughs> <laughs> and the cast. It's like, the only thing I can think it's comparable to is the Sandwich Men from the 60s, which has everybody in it. This has about everybody minus one or two actors. Let's start shouting names out. Norman Mitchell. Spike Milligan. The lovely Amy MacDonald. Michael Robbins. My, yeah, Michael Robbins. Patrick Newell. Arthur Lloyd. Melvin Hayes. Arthur, yeah, Arthur Lloyd. Completely forgotten about that. Peter Sellier, of course, who we, so we know that he's up to no good. Poor guy. I am sure he's lovely and I'm sure he's wonderful to work with, but he always gets the slimy characters. <laughs> but then again, there's money in those slimy characters. And of course, before he was infamous, he was simply famous, Bill Grundy. Bill Maynard. Oh, and of course, Jack Smith, Hurston, Rudolph Walker. Ah, that's except for viewers on ITV3, exactly, yeah. Should we talk about that scene? Or, well, I think we can trust everybody to know about it. Yeah, and if yeah, if you seek out a, a DVD copy of it rather than watch the ITV3 version, you'll see the scene in question. But and you'll see why it's, why it's cut out. But there's a long sequence. I think it would have been better if George had walked into Thames Television Bar and Jack had gone, Brian, love, it's been a while. <laughs> Remember I was talking on the map of the sitcom universe about the celebrity paradox, which is that certain famous people can't exist in the same world as people played by them. So that's the thing, is that Brian Murphy either doesn't exist or is not a famous actor in George's world, because otherwise they would have recognised him down the Thames Television Bar. Or even better, actually, if uh, he walked in the Thames Television Bar and Youth of Joyce had been sitting there. What are you doing here? You're coming with me. <laughs> I still want to see the Ropers meet the Ropers. I don't see why this can't happen. Well, fan fiction is an integral part of the internet. You got a keyboard, I'm not stopping you. That wasn't very encouraging, was it? <laughs> no, it was not. And with good reason. I'm not taking that as a full-on commission, no. For those of you still playing Map of the Sitcom Universe, I wouldn't read too much into the fact that Mildred has a different maiden name in the movie. When she meets up with somebody who knew her before she was married to George, without giving too much away, she gets caught, oh, Mildred Asquith. But of course, in the TV show, she was Mildred Tremble. But I'm going to say that we don't have to come up with too many fanciful theories. I'm pretty sure if your surname was Tremble, you might occasionally introduce yourself with a different surname. Though if anybody's listening and their surname is Tremble, then I've just dug a massive hole for myself. <laughs> Let's move on. I want to take issue, not with this whole offence you've caused to all the trembles in the world. I want to take issue with the suggestion that there may be some people who are not still playing the sitcom map of the universe. I presume that everyone is. Everyone who's listening to the podcast, certainly. It's a game that we play in our minds all the time. You're never actually not playing it. Let's not play it today. It's, it's too hot. <laughs> right. The plot. I can only think of one other film with this plot, but it just seems to me the standard thing of adapting... An ongoing franchise with a fairly fixed world. If you want to do a movie version, you just put that world under threat. And in this, they're going to pull down the houses where Chrissy and Robin and Joe's flat is. The only other one I could think of is a film called Weekend Reunion. I think, I think that's the title. Turned up on BBC Two one time. And it appeared to be late 80s sex comedy. This guy's got a woman in the shower, and there's a knock at the door. Oh, no, there's another woman. Oh, no, and she thinks that I've run, I'm running the shower for her. Oh, what am I going to do? The guy was called Archie, and the women were called Betty and Veronica, these being the names of the great love triangle in Archie Comics, beloved in the United States, not so famous outside of it, which is just, it's just teenage fun. And the whole thing is, is he can never decide which girl he wants to be his best girl. 
I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. They're doing a little reference to Archie comics. That's cute. And then in the next scene, there was somebody in it called Jughead. And it's like, okay, there's, there's only one Jughead. This is a film of Archie comics, but with implications of actual sex. But in that, it was, yeah, okay, here's the Archie gang, and it's 20 years later, and they're all grown up, and the town's going to get pulled down so somebody can build a mall. And even when I saw that many, many years ago, I thought, well, that's a fairly standard plot, isn't it? But it's effective. It's good enough to sustain a film. So I think it works in the favour of Men About the House. This plot must have been used in a children's film foundation, surely. Should we do a children's film foundation film? Yes. During our summer recess. Oh, yeah. They've all got sitcom stars. I mean, yeah. Ronnie Barker's in one at least. So, yeah, let's do oh, that. Let's do that. Fantastic. Right. So, I don't have much to say about this because it worked and I enjoyed it. Be a lot more to say if it didn't. Well, we're not discussing the elephant in the room, so I think we need to address this just now. I'm not aware of there being an elephant in the room. The but elephant. It's because it's. The elephant in the room. It's not very well lit. Well. It's horrible, grim film flat. <laughs> I'm going to say film fair. Get me back to my VT bedsit. <laughs> no, the elephant in the room is, given that he appears, I think, a total of about maybe 108 times in the TV series, always as a different character, where the hell's Norman Ashley? He must have been busy that week. I suppose. Aubrey Morris, we, did, we didn't mention him. He's in it, very briefly. But it gives us a link to Deadwood. I couldn't really examine how it works. Oh, there's not much to say that... You, about it that you can't really say about the TV show, which is everybody seems to enjoy each other's company as actors. They've all got the chemistry going. How This this is only after one or two series, though, isn't it? Yeah, this is 1974, so it's only one year in. I think this film benefits hugely from using the locations well. Again, it doesn't take them out of their comfort zone. It doesn't send them to a far-flung corner of the universe. But because you've got... Just, just the very storyline about how they're going to pull down this lovely old terraced row of houses. Oh, you mentioned about the scene where Larry's driving to the place and so on, and just it, it uses London I'm really just well. I'm thinking they really use the idea well of pulling the houses down. Let's bring the local MP into it. That takes us up a step, so we can have him appearing on television about the controversial plan. So that's when we get our trip to fake Teddington, and without giving too much away, he has his own link to the plot, which serves to complicate car. This is this is really nicely put together. Well, yeah, this is the thing because we spoke before about how bless this house, it's got its it's got its story arc and develops well enough. Final Day of Father was a bit more patchy, but Man About the House is a really tightly scripted, formatted film, and there really isn't a great deal of excess. I mean, you've got well, like one or two little scenes in there, which I suppose don't necessarily add anything to the overall plot, but by and large, everything's in there for a reason. And you've got a nice mixture there also of, because you're able to bring in the other members of the street, you can have ensemble pieces like in the pub, for example. And then you can also have the nice little intimate scenes that are just in the flat. So you get a nice mix between the two. I've made a few other notes here about some of the other sitcom spin-offs of the 1970s. I've got the film poster for one of them here. I'm just going to send this to you and let me know what you think of this. Okay. What year is that? That is 1972. It is the poster... Oh, boy, they invented punk. They're right there. Well, yeah. It is the poster for the rather curiously titled Ned Sharon's production of Johnny Spate's The Alf Garnet Saga. There was, of course, the film version of To Death is Depart, 1969. The original To Death is Depart film has got a nice sort of 50-50 split in its storyline because part of it's set in World War II and then suddenly it becomes bang up to date, 1969 
when Alf's aha, aha, add this to your list, Ocho. Films which involve houses being torn down. That is the plot to definitely ah. part. And in this instance, it actually goes ahead. Compulsory purchase, and off they move to their new tower block. And this film then picks up on that storyline because it pretty much starts where the Death of Part finishes off. And then now in their tower block, Alf is complaining about, for example, the power cuts causing the lifts to go off and so on. However, a couple of little bits and pieces in the description of the film in IMDb caught my attention. You may notice there that the roles of Mike and Rita are not being portrayed by Anthony Booth or Eunice Stubbs. No. Paul Angelis, who you'll have seen in many a drama, many a oh, sitcom, yes. appears in the odd episode of Porridge and Man About the House around about this time. He's playing Mike. Adrian Posta, who is in all manner of things, particularly at this the period of time. She was, Budgie, I think. Okay, she was appearing with Mike Yarwood quite often in his shows. She appears in Carry On Behind, that we mentioned before, was written by Dave Freeman. Odd bit of sort of recasting there, but... I'm thinking that we probably should have watched this film for our research because this is a description on IMDb. For a start, it says that Johnny Spate himself makes an uncredited appearance as Barmy Harry, a drunken, malodious bigot. Secondly, Mike is depicted as a womanizing drug addict. <laughs> While Rita, bearing in mind that the name I'm going to give you here... He's playing himself. He's not playing a role, he's playing himself. While Rita sets out to shock her family by pretending to spend the night with Kenny Lynch. Oh, that's no reaction to Kenny Lynch. It's just kind of like, right, I can see all the jokes come. Everything we said about how the scene tried to invert expectations in Father Dear Father. These are the expectations they were trying to invert. I can see how that scene would have played. It actually gets a little stranger. He was on Through the Keyhole. He was, and he also had a cracking record in 1980 called Great Half a CND logo on his kitchen door. All right. right. I can't remember my social security number, which is something you really <laughs> should be able to remember in the United States, and it's, it's something you need a lot. But I can remember Kenny Lynch's kitchen door from through the keyhole. So that's my brain for you. Thank you. <laughs> if you're I can a fan remember of the time Paul Daniels read out a definition of the word grunge on <laughs> every second counts. <laughs> and that's how he said grunge. The definition was thrift store chic. Thrift store chic. If you're a fan of Brit Funk, by the way, please track down Kenny Lynch's 1980 single, Half It Is Gone and We Haven't Earned a Penny. It's bloody brilliant. Anyway, we haven't even touched on the strangest aspects of the Alf Garnet saga yet. Playing themselves in the film are Arthur Askey, Max Bygraves, footballers Bobby Moore and George Best, and Eric Sykes. Wow. Eric well, of course, Sykes. Eric Sykes is uh, friends with Spate. I mean, Johnny Spate wrote the initial episodes of Sykes and a uh, dot, dot, dot. Eric Sykes actually plays opposite Alf Garnet in a one-off episode of Till Death is Part called Up the Poles, which went out in election in 1970. Now, is this the earliest example that we can find of sitcom characters transferring from one channel to another? Because we have Eric Sykes and Spike Milligan as the characters that they played in Curry and Chips on London Weekend suddenly turning up in a BBC sitcom. Now, obviously, both written by the same guy, but nevertheless, that's got to be one of the first instances of that type, surely. And finally, this is a review of the Alf Garnet saga on IMDb by a user called Shade Grenade, who says, As the film plods on, the humour grows increasingly desperate. 
culminating in a horribly embarrassing sequence in which Alf has an LSD trip. <laughs> Step aside, Skidoo. So there you go. That's that's. Well, <laughs> we're definitely going back to the movies at some point. What I'd like to see us do is go through different decades. We've got Rising Damp Warp's Apocalypse for the eighties, and there must be something else. We can go back to the sixties because we've got there was an army game film. So I guess we can we can push 1958 into the 1960s for that. This is not a topic that's exhausted. I, however, am a person who's exhausted. I did want to talk about sitcoms that could never have been made into films, but then again, I'm seeing that nearest and dearest and never mind the quality feel the width got films. So why didn't The Good Life get a movie? Well, exactly. And maybe it came a bit too late to the Why wasn't there a Heidi party. High movie? Well, by the 80s... While there are a few instances of sitcoms being made into films, generally the sitcom movie is the television special, Miami Twice, Getting Sam Home. But why, yes, why didn't Heidi High get an all-on film? Because Heidi High would have worked, because you've got a location that we never really quite get the dimensions of. You could have a nice opening shot going through, you know, past the chalets and into the Three Bears Grotto and by the pool and just have a little wander around while the credits play out and have a look at what Meplin's camp looks like. But never mind, because there was a George and Mildred movie. I have not seen that. Well, do you want to And confess? I'm going to. I'm you, going to. Do you want to confess as to what other sitcom films you've not seen? Oh, Master you, of the Myth. You let this slip the other day and I was appalled. Well, I've, I can't, I can't be that appalled because I can't remember what show it was that I mentioned. You've never seen the films of Steptoe and Son. Yeah, this, this is true. They've just never turned <sighs> up at the right time. Unbelievable. They might have turned up on TV and it's like, oh, it's 11 o'clock and I have to be somewhere tomorrow and this will be on again. This will definitely be on again. <laughs> and I live in the age of home video. So we'll we'll get round to that. We'll fix it. It's not it's not like Star Wars where I refused after a certain point and not seeing Star Wars and everybody going, You've not seen Star Wars, you have to see Star Wars and I said I will never see Star Wars unless they show all three, because there are only three films at that point, in my favourite cinema on the same day. And they did. Who could have realised that would happen? Well, isn't there gonna be another one though? There's gonna be a seventh, isn't it? Yeah, but who cares about Star Wars? Unless they Perhaps. get some British sitcom war horses in there, which could happen because uh, episode one, The Phantom Menace, I think Celia Imrie is in there and Andrew Seacombe does one of the voices. Ah. Because Peter Serafinowicz is Darth Maul. So Indeed. It could happen, but who would be the most welcome face and unexpected? Bobby Ball. <laughs> Patricia Brake. <laughs> oh, speaking of Patricia Brake, I've been watching... Newly available from Network DVD, Man's Best Friends. Unusually, a Roy Clark offered. You can't tease the people TV because program. we've sworn after our summer recess, we're going to have a normal edition next week. Then we're going to go crazy for the summer. We're going to come back. We're going to do our first revisit, but we're not telling you what it is. But something we've discussed before is going to get discussed again. And then after that, we're dedicating ourselves, aren't we, to getting everybody's requests out of the way. We are. We are indeed. We are indeed. And we have had a lot of requests over the past few months, and disgracefully, we've been, not putting them off, but we've been saying, yeah, we'll, we'll get around to that just as soon as we've finished watching Romany Jones Series 4 for the second time. So, yeah, we're actually going to knuckle down and we're going to get these requests properly seen, properly reviewed. And, and there you have it. Before we wrap up, I want to leave you one last thought on the 
sitcom films. I don't know how true this is, but I want it to be true. And if I want it to be true enough, then it is true. So I'm just going to believe that this is a fact. There's a little detail that I found on the Den of Geek website in an article talking about sitcom movie spin-offs. As for the film of Nearest and Dearest, it is rumoured that it was shown for several years behind the Iron Curtain as a surefire discouragement for anyone considering defecting to the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they didn't need to go and get the film. They could have just played the episode of Not In Your Nelly that we reviewed. Perfect. (laughs) Play that for 24 hours. Well, thank you for joining us on this week's edition of the sitcom club don't forget you can download all of our previous episodes just go to sitcomclub.com and you'll find the details on there and if you're not already do please follow us on twitter at the sitcom club or on facebook at the sitcom club next week it's our end of term special and we're going to be doing something a little bit different i for one i'm in the dark about what it's going to be hmm intriguing more on that next week on the sitcom club <laughs>